Hello and welcome to episode four of Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy. Today, we are very grateful to be joined by Murakami Yumiko san, general partner at Empower Partners and former head of the OECD Tokyo Center. Yumiko san has a vast wealth of experience in both international organizations and the private sector, as well as experience advising the Japanese government in various councils, including those in the cabinet office, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Prior to the OECD, she worked as a management director for Goldman Sachs in New York and London for 20 years. She was also involved in UN peacekeeping forces in Cambodia and economic development assistance work in East Caribbean. Yumiko san is also the author of the book Bukitoshite no Jinkogen Shakai, titled Turning Demographic Challenges into Economic Opportunities in English. Her book is a bestseller in the Amazon Economic Books category. She's also a graduate of Sofia University in Tokyo and received a master's degree in international relations from Stanford and MBA from Harvard. Yumiko san, we are delighted to have you today. Yumiko san, if I may start with drawing upon your very broad range of international expertise just to set Japan in, in, a, in the regional context. So I know US competition is intensifying, but there's particularly a focus on economic security within that competition. And within that, there's a focus obviously on decoupling, de risking of supply chains, and so on. Japan's been such a major investor in, in Asia. Uh, for many, many years now, and he's really embedded economically in China as well. So, how do you think that Japanese companies are responding to the current regional geoeconomic environment? Thank you for the question. I wish I could just say, here's the answer. <laughs> no one knows the answer. It's a very difficult situation that Japanese companies are facing. It's sort of being caught in a crossfire between、uh, the most important trading partners. For Japan, so US accounting for what, 15% or so of the Japan's trade value, and China, 20, I believe, 3 or 4%. So both are extremely important trading partners for Japan. Japanese companies are literally caught in the crossfire. But it's not the unique situation for Japan. Many other European countries, for example, they are in a similar situation. But I do think Japan has a very unique positioning located so close to so many important other markets in Asia. So that gives you a different dynamics in terms of what Japan can do in terms of the turning this crisis or a very difficult situation into potentially opportunity. What I mean by that is that Japan can be extremely important for. Both US and China. And Japan is in a very unique situation to play both. Semiconductor, for example, that, that's actually a really interesting way to look at how dynamics are changing. Japan still deals with China、uh, in terms of trading volume. If you look at the 2021 this year trading volume, Japan still trades with US and China mainly, but China in particular. Semiconductor equipment, that's number one, one of the biggest、um, products export to China. So, what does that mean? It's critical, as you probably know, that's the pain point for a lot of industries, very important industries. 
a lot of uh, technology companies are basically suffering from the shortage, extremely severe shortage of, of semiconductor products, not only in China, but also in the U.S. as well. So Japan is actually in a really interesting situation because they are the one who is providing extremely critically important part of the trading volume for, for China. The other interesting thing is uh, there is a lot of talk in terms of how Japan is trying to entice investments into Japan to open new plants, especially from Taiwan. So that's another interesting angle. Um, as you know, the supply chain, especially when it comes to a semiconductor, that is becoming a very politicized issue here. U.S. is really building up their capacity in terms of uh, semiconductor production capacity. China is suffering from the fact that they are still lagging behind when it comes to production of semiconductors. Taiwan, as you know, has really emerged as the most important player in that space. Where does Japan fit? It fits in, in, in sort of a middle way. It's still an important player in terms of production capability, but they don't have the kind of volume it used to have. But they still have very high level of R&D. They still have very high level of users. So if you talk about Toyota of the world, if you talk about Sony of the world, they are Japanese companies. It makes a lot of sense for uh, Japan to try to get investments from Taiwan to expand the semiconductor production capability within the Japanese territory to enhance the supply chain uh, for semiconductor, not only for Japan, but also perhaps for the U.S. because of the alliance between U.S. and Japan. So again, that gives Japan a lot of interesting sort of leverage, so, so to speak, which wasn't that clear up until this point, up until this point, meaning until now we see this very severe decoupling situation. And I do think the fact that Japan can potentially play I don't want to call it a game, but it is a really a game, a sort of interesting balance of power to their advantage. I think it's an interesting situation. I mean, it's a difficult situation, right, in terms of decoupling. It's affecting a lot of countries, many countries in Europe, many countries in Asia, including Japan. But because of where Japan is relative to other countries, I do think Japan actually can see this as an opportunity. The government's been talking about strategic indispensability, trying to create sort of niche for Japan. Uh, in, in the sense of being sort of indispensable in certain areas. Do you think there's a sort of niche for Japan in semiconductors in this sort of strategic in, in indispensability vision? I think it can be one of them. I don't think semiconductor itself, in terms of production capability, can be uh, such a um, huge advantage, I would say. But the fact that Japan can really use that link to strengthen the entire supply chain, not just for a supply chain of semiconductor, but the supply chain for other products. You know, we're talking about literally cars, we're talking about Sony, uh, we're talking about many other related industries. And Japan does have a very strong capability when it comes to, for example, batteries. You would think batteries as a standalone product, they may not be all that ex exciting, but if you look at battery as a part of this huge supply chain, it can be all of a sudden very interesting part of the Japan's offerings. So if you combine that with the fact that Japan may be in a position to really rump up and, and, and start producing more semiconductor at the high end, so there, as you know, there are a very wide range of semiconductor products, right? So we're talking about the very high end of the semiconductor products, which can be executed perhaps more easily in Japan versus other countries. And I do think that can be potentially Japan's so-called edge. So not a standalone in terms of 
semiconductor production capability, but because it can be embedded in a much bigger framework in terms of other industries that is Japan's edge. And I hopefully this is giving Japan an opportunity to play that card and hopefully Japan can actually really do well. Back to decoupling briefly. Last year, the government provided some subsidies for companies to relocate production out of out of China, perhaps into Southeast Asia, perhaps back into Japan. But it doesn't seem to have been. I mean, I think the take up has has not been that good with regard to this. What do you think is going through Japanese companies' minds as as they're making the decisions about where to keep their production? It's an interesting trend, you know. As you said, diversification from China to other parts of Asia in terms of you know uh, manufacturing capabilities. Look at Apple, for example, right? Not only Japan, but for example, Apple developed by Apple in California, assembled in China. That whole approach, i.e., R and D in the U.S. and the supply chain in China or Asia. You know, the reality is, if you look at the new plants that have been built in Vietnam for Apple. Many of them are actually owned by China, <laughs> so even though at the sort of on a superficial level, you may think, "Oh, yeah, there is a lot of diversification going on, not, not only with Japanese companies, but you know, Apple of the world." But the reality is, China still has a very, very dominant space in many of these、uh, large countries or companies' supply chain system. For political reasons, yes, Japan actually has decided to. Push for diversification、um, process, but the reality is it is not moving as quickly as you might think. And I do think that's the case for many other countries. It's not just unique for Japan. So what Japan can do is the fact that Japan is very close to many other Asian markets, closer to these Asian markets than say the U.S. is. U.S. is quite frankly, in my opinion. Is having a little bit of an issue in terms of how they should be working with Asian countries. They're, they're trying. You can see how they're trying, <laughs> but、uh, they they don't have the greatest track record, right? When it comes to, especially in the last several years, when it comes to working with、um, Asian countries or in general in the multinational, multilateral trading frameworks, they are not probably the best country to sort of set the tone or sort of lead a collaboration. But Japan is, or Japan is at least better or better positioned. To lead regional, if not global, multilateral、uh, trading framework. Certainly for Asia, Japan can play, or Japan has been playing a much of a leading role. RCEP, for example, Japan actually really has led that RCEP discussion. If you look at TPP, even it became eleven, <laughs> not twelve. Japan still really pushed through the whole process. So Japan does have a track record of having a very strong credibility. When it comes to working with many other Asian countries, so I do think that yes, Japan actually really tried officially pushed this whole diversification move. In reality, it really has not happened as quickly or as you know as aggressively as people might think. The reality is, I think we are still living in this multilateral trading framework. It may not be working all that perfectly. Now that Japan has established a sort of track record for both TPP and both RCEP, now as you probably know, there is a new alliance promoted by U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. As you probably know, that's another one.、Uh, that's very clear, right? The intention is very clear. It's trying to make sure that there is an alliance that doesn't have Chinese influence. Japan is still in that quad. It's still one of the four. It's an interesting time for Japan. You know, this is the the whole decoupling, and it, it's a hard. 
situation for many countries, but I will look at it as opportunity for Japanese government and Japanese business players. Your comments sort of lead us nicely to my next question, actually, which is around the CPTPP. And as you've been saying, you know, Japan played a really important role, key role in keeping the CPTPP on track after US withdrawal. As we all know, China has put an application in to join. Uh, and, and Taiwan as well. And as you said, Imiko-san, absolutely rightly, it's a really interesting time for Japan. How does Japan manage this, particularly on the CPTPP, with this sort of geopolitics encroaching quite, uh, quite quickly, particularly over the, last, uh, over the last week or so? Again, I wish I, I knew the answer. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it's a very challenging situation. One of the key elements is obviously the data issue, right? How do we look at the whole data trust issue? Japan has an interesting almost edge. If you look at what Japan did in two years ago at G20, they were spearheading this whole idea of you know uh, data free flow with trust again it's a very challenging situation in terms of having everybody on board it's you know it's not going to happen tomorrow but the idea is for japan to establish a strong enough framework with in which countries can really take advantage of the new data driven economy actually is going to be one of the most important elements if you're talking about you know trade or any economic issues uh, whether trade has a very strong element of data usage japan really try to come up with a framework which reflects some of the very strong regulation elements many of them are coming from the eu for example but uh, at the same time china has a very different concept when it comes to data regulations so japan tried to come up with something that can be seen as strong enough framework in terms of having a very uh, high level of safety at the same time strong enough but it's not uh, so inflexible that it's going to prevent companies or countries from having a very strong data elements in their business development so again this is two years ago and again this is g20 when japan was chairing g20 and i was part of the oecd team working for the G, uh, g20 meetings and i remember this was really one of the biggest things that japan really tried to push forward so two years later today basically a similar issue has come up when it comes to data a concept is completely different what china has in their head and what we have in in our head in japan and what they european guys you guys have very different different sort of you know uh, approach and the u.s has a very different different approach so I do think Japan can, again, become, I don't want to say go between, because at the end of the day, there is no way that Japan should compromise in terms of the level of, of protection, level of safeguarding. But at the same time, they can be the bridge in terms of making sure people have the share the same understanding in terms of what needs to be done. And I don't think it's going to be very easy. You know, it's a relatively new sort of development, right? What we're seeing with China. If anyone is going to do it, I think Japan is the one that can potentially broker in terms of filling the gap between these two different worlds here in terms of how they look at data. You rightly say, Yumiko-san, I mean, data free flow with trust, really important uh, for the whole liberal international order, actually, particularly given China's uh, data sovereignty push, Russia as well, others too, so important development. Global standards and rule setting are also now an important area of geopolitical competition, particularly as China also now sees itself uh, as, an, as a rule setter and has aspirations to set rules, particularly in, in the world of data and cyber. What role do you think that Japanese companies can play in setting international standards? I think that's one thing that I would love to see more of. In terms of the voices I can hear from the private sector, the Japanese companies that can be 
more visible or can really push forward some of the very important you know, agenda items such as data free flow with trust. They're not as visible as they should be. If you look at the level of infrastructure or the level of technologies that many of these Japanese companies own, they have ability to be an opinion leader. I don't think they're doing that as much as they should. So again, Japan has a very unique situation right now being in the region, in Asia, being so close to China, being so close to the rest of Asia, being dominant player in the Southeast Asia business market. Japanese companies, if they do speak up, there are enough people who want to listen to them. That's one area where I would love to see more of. You know, again, I came from OECD, just left a couple months ago. At OECD, of course, we do a lot of international conferences and many discussions. And I, I always felt as if Japan, or especially Japanese companies from the Japanese private sector, they could be more visible just because they have so much to offer, just because their history with China, history with the U.S., history with Southeast Asia on the business front, they should be a lot more visible or they should be playing more leadership role. One belt, one road, obviously. You know, Japan has been competing China uh, by promoting quality infrastructure approach which takes into um, consideration a, a very wide range of factors when making investment decisions, such as you know environmental impact or social impact or debt sustainability. Those are the things that are normally you know important for a Japanese project versus Chinese project, right? But what's interesting is um, uh, Japan has taken the view that they can work with China. So the, the way the Japanese government or Japanese even companies have been looking at the whole picture in terms of, you know, one belt, one road versus, you know, high quality infrastructure approach is that, hey, we can work with China. You know, we can actually work with them and let them see how we do it. Let them see, you know, what kind of benefits Chinese companies or Chinese government can, can really gain by doing the way we do it. So that's the approach. So they've been very cordial. They've been very supportive of, of each other between Japanese and, and, and Chinese. And I think that's an interesting way to approach political tension that we're seeing in, in this region, I mean, around the world, really, but especially in, in Asia. So that's what I would love to see more of you know, from Japanese companies. When they work with China, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be enemies, <laughs> And they have taken a really good good approach. I, I see this approach as a very good example for the U.S. as well, and a good example um, for Japanese companies and other companies in terms of how they can set the high level, you know, high standard, and let them see how they conduct themselves in terms of you know executing these projects. Inclusiveness it was, is really the key for Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific foreign policy, but also its policy approaches to shape the digital rules making, as, as you mentioned. We talked a lot about the role of Japanese businesses and, and Japan's potentials in, in Asia. We're very interested in hearing more about the role of Japan's startup in all these discussions. And this year, you launched the ESG-focused venture capital fund Empower Partners with Kathy Matsui and Miwaseki. Could you please tell us why you decided to set up this fund? Yeah, so thank you for the question. Um, so I have been, I'm Japanese, I was born and raised in Japan, I went to the US for graduate studies, and I, I basically ended up staying in the US almost all my adult life. But when I came back to Japan, which was about 11, 12 years ago, I felt as if Japan has so much to offer. I mean, there's so many good things going on, you know, in this country, 
number one, food is great. I mean, I love Japanese food here. Restaurants are great. <laughs> but, you know, it's safe. And, you know, there are a bunch of things that are going really amazingly well in this country, especially somebody like me who spent half my life in the, in the U.S. I love the U.S., by the way. But I, I see, you know, at the same time, a lot of social problems. And, you know, I started to think, so w- why is it? Japan has so much to offer. It's such a great country in terms of the quality of people, in terms of educational levels, in terms of, you know, technology, social infrastructure. But why does Japan have such a low productivity? Why is it that Japanese companies are not that profitable? The growth rate is, you know, one of the lowest among the OECD countries. And I realized that it is, at least partially, because not many young companies can grow in this country. I spent seven and a half years with OECD looking at a bunch of sort of international comparable data sets. And again, there's so many good things going on for Japan. But I realized that um, these dots are not connected. Given my experience in the financial industry, I thought, okay, maybe I should combine financial industry experience uh, and this desire to kickstart this whole startup scene, you know, like pushing them to to do something about this sort of, you know, uh, slow growth um, situation that Japan has been in for the last basically 20 years. So I spoke to my friends, Kathy Matsui and Miwaseki. Uh, they are my partners, three of us. We have been in financial industry for you know, a long time, 20 some years. Kathy and I actually started together at Goldman Sachs uh, in the same year. She started in Tokyo, I started in New York, but we worked as, you know, colleagues for a long time. Miwa Seki was one year ahead of me at business school. So that's how we met again, 20 some years ago. She also spent quite a few years with Morgan Stanley, and then she became a portfolio manager of Japanese uh, uh, equity portfolio for a U.S. asset management company. So we all have had very long investment industry experience. We also had very unique situation or experience as a minority, as a woman in the Japanese context. And we also felt as if, hey, Japan has so much to offer, but what is it that's lacking? Because we don't see a lot of growth. So we share the same sort of sense of almost crisis because we we love Japan. We are from Japan. We see a lot of really good potentials, but something is missing, sort of slow death that Japan is going through. Perhaps one of the most impactful things that someone like me or, you know, uh, we can do is to set up a, a fund and invest in startup companies. Japan is flooded with cash, but not much risk money. So we figured, okay, if we provide risk money, because we have great people, because we have a great technologies, maybe things will change. So that's what we are trying to do. Relative to the GDP of in Japan, the you know, so-called risk money or investments into startups or you know, basically private companies before they go public, Japan is 135th of the United States. Compared to China, it's like 116th or something like that. Some crazy. So it's, it's tiny, tiny, tiny. Yet money is everywhere. You know, Japanese companies are sitting on this huge amount of cash so the money is not an issue risk money is an issue so hopefully we can trigger the movement that can hopefully lead to growth of japanese economy we think that we can do so by 
focusing on companies that can scale to the global level by integrating ESG. If you look at the ESG investment trend, Japan is starting to catch up with the rest of the world, but it's still kind of relatively new concept. We do think that ESG is not just sort of nice thing to say, but the ESG elements are the, the elements that can make companies more sustainable and more competitive and really can help them grow on a global level. So we're combining the ESG elements with this uh, investment fund that we just launched. And hopefully you're, you're right. It's, it's still new, right? It's, it's been only four months or so since we launched the fund. The target is 150. We're not disclosing the amount of um, capital we have uh, raised. I can say we have received extremely strong support from investors. So it makes me feel really good about what people are uh, really looking for. I think, you know, especially large institutions, large financial institutions in Japan, they really know what they need to do. And I do think, you know, when I say oh, there's no risk money, they, they know that's what they need to do. But it's easy to say, hard to do. So when we went to them and, hey, this is the concept, uh, they were very supportive. And I think it goes to show you how at least the, the sense of crisis is there, the awareness is there. And I think we give them more options in terms of deploying capital or risk capital uh, into the segment. I think there will be even more uh, risk money uh, going forward for Japan. Very interesting. And again, we're very grateful to have the first co-founder of the first female-led venture capital fund as our first Japanese private sector guest in our podcast. Creating vibrant startup ecosystem was maybe not the major, but one of the elements, I think, under the growth strategy in Abenomics. Um, but do you think this was successful or what more do you think needs to happen in the future Japanese governments? In terms of the, I guess, growth strategies that Abe administration try to execute, you probably know three arrows, right? So everyone said first arrow, fine. Second arrow, fine. The third arrow was the one that really go that far. And that third arrow, which is basically a structural reform, as far as I'm concerned, that was the most important arrow, but unfortunately it really has not been executed as, as well as I was hoping to, and, and I'm sure people are disappointed as well. That is also part of the fact that, that explain the labor market is still very rigid uh, because the structural reform was really not executed in, in a full. And when the labor market is rigid, when the mobility within the Japanese labor market is, is not that great, it's hard for startups to recruit young talent. It's hard for growing companies to recruit, you know, the very high level talents. Same thing for Japanese you know, traditional companies as well. One of the most important um, elements was the fact that labor market had to be restructured or had to be really destroyed and renewed. I see a change. I see some Japanese companies are changing in terms of the way they manage their uh, employees and their recruiting practices are, are starting to change. But if you look at the macro picture, it's still very rigid. And that makes it hard for people to move around. That makes it hard for new companies to hire high-level talent. I hope that would change. Another aspect of Amenomics was to promote more uh, female in, in the workforce. And I'm sure you have been very active on this and your colleagues as well, uh, who also coined the term womanomics. Do you think this has been successful so far? Or what more would you like to see in, on this aspect as well? 
Yes, of course, it's one of the most important aspects. In fact, it is a very low hanging fruit for Japan. I can tell you one of the OECD surveys that I always mention is the adult skill survey. We look at adult population 16 to 65 and sort of look at the basic skill levels for literacy and numeracy. So, can you read and write and can you do math? And Japan comes at the top, 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 top. Japanese women come at the top. It's not like we have to start sending women back to school, it's not like we have to retrain them. The level,、um, skill levels, again, numeracy、uh, and literacy, already at the top level, Japanese women. Yet, OECD's data shows gender wage gap. Is the, one of the largest in Japan, so it's 26% between men and women. When women, Japanese women, at the top level in terms of skill levels, they suffer from the largest wage gaps. Women are already well educated, <laughs>、uh, well skilled. So if you were to place them in leadership roles in the same way as men are today, Uh, if you were to narrow or eliminate the gap in terms of compensation,、um, promotion opportunities, then what would happen? The Japanese long term GDP growth you know, potential would double. Instead of 1%, it would be, be almost 2%. And it's not secret. A lot of people have already done this, you know, this sort of scenario analysis. We have done it at OECD. Well, I shouldn't say we because I would left OECD, but my colleagues at OECD、um, have, have run the, the scenario, and the GDP of Japanese economy just doubled 20 years if you address that 26% wage gap. The same studies have been done by the, the Japanese government and IMF and World Bank, and they all come up with the same conclusion. So that's an opportunity, and Japan has so much to offer in terms of addressing that issue. Abe administration has done a really good job sort of, sort of promoting women to work. If you look at the female labor market participation rate, Abe administration has done an amazing job pushing that ratio、uh, to one of the top now,、uh, top ratio. Now it's higher than that of the US. So I don't think it's a huge problem in terms of women working. The problem is the fact that a lot of women are working, but not in leadership positions or executive positions, and therefore the wage gap still remains very large. How close do you think Japan is to having a, a female prime minister? Well, we had two out of four candidates, women, right? <laughs> so that's a pretty, so that's actually a very good start、um, for, well, unfortunately, or, you know, I guess it was expected that we, we have、um, a male,、um, but, you know, hopefully he will do a good job.、Uh, you know, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, to be honest with you. The new prime minister,、um, Shasan, and also they have seen. What has happened in terms of how Japan has been failing in terms of gender diversity scorecard and how that has hurt Japan. And I, I hope that they realize that this is again a very low hanging fruit. If you look at the World Economic Forum gender you know, index, you probably know Japan has been slipping, slipping, slipping even through the Abe administration time when he was really pushing this whole diversity agenda. One of the biggest reasons why that has happened is the fact that on the political front, you don't see a lot of women in the cabinet. Hopefully, you know, the new prime minister and other leaders they have learned a lesson that they need to start with their own cabinet. And I don't have no idea how many women are going to be selected,、uh, but hopefully, they will address that. The society is a reflection of the government. 
hopefully Kedan Ren and you know other business leaders see they're doing it. <laughs> We're going to do it too. Before Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, she was asked, you know, would, would there be a female prime minister in the United Kingdom? And I think she said probably not in her lifetime. And then, of course, uh, she became the first. Thank you very much for your fascinating insights. So we would like to end with our Japan Memo questions. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand about Japan? I don't have a book recommendation. Nowadays, a lot of the reading that we used to do has been replaced by podcasts. So I have a recommendation for podcast. It's entitled Japan Capitalism That Works. It's a podcast by Jasper Call. K-O-L-L. It's fascinating. It's a series. But uh, what I just talked about in terms of startups, he has a very interesting perspective what Japan can do to take advantage of this very difficult situation and then perhaps turn this into much more interesting opportunity, something that I would love people to listen to. What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? I think people get wrong about, for example, the Japanese demographic challenge. People tend to think this as a, a, a huge negative. And you know, I'm not saying it is not a negative. It can have a lot of negative impact. It can also offer a very, very attractive upside. Japan is a first country to face it. And guess what? The rest of the world, whether it's China or Korea or US, even US or Europe, the rest of the world they're going to have the same problem, whether it's going to be five years on the road, 10 years on the road, it's different time points in the future, but relatively in the near future. This can be an amazing business opportunity. What Japan can do to address the aging society, it can be exported to China. It can be exported to Europe. My mother was a housewife until 48. She started a drugstore at the age of 48, she was an entrepreneur. She sold a lot of adult diapers at her drugstore. No one thought adult diapers would be a big hit, but she knew there was going to be a demand because she was taking care of her in-laws who were in the 80s. Now, you probably know in Japan, adult diapers sell much more than baby diapers. So that's just, you know, that, that's a kind of simple example in terms of how uh, this can be a potentially really interesting business opportunity in terms, in terms of what Japan is facing as a result of declining population, as a result of aging society. China is so big right next to Japan, and they're going to have the same problem in just a couple of years on the road. That tends to be missed when people look at Japan. Oh, Japanese population declining and aging society. An interesting point that people tend to miss. I think you're spot on there, Yumiko-san, about the opportunities from the ageing population as well. And there are lots of companies in Japan doing really interesting things, sort of servicing the older population. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful place to, to end on. Thank you, Yumiko-san. You've, you've ranged over foreign policy, trade issues, business issues, uh, startup issues and, and demography. So we've covered a, a lot of ground here. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you, listeners, for listening to, to episode four of Japan. Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the broader IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at Robert Allen Ward and at Yuka Koshino. Thank you again and see you next time.